this multi-talented entertainer. He could act. He knew what he was doing as an actor. <laughs> he really knew what he was doing as an actor. He knew how to perform and to sing. Because of that acting uh, ability, I believe that's his, how he interpreted his songs. You, you, ju you just don't turn that off. The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. It is a real pleasure today to welcome my guest, award-winning television director Michael Pomerico, who for more than 30 years worked on the popular series All My Children. He has been a faithful David Cassidy fan since 1970, seeing him in concert, including Madison Square Garden, the Garden State Arts Centre in Homedale, New Jersey, where Michael grew up, on Broadway, and recalls his final show at B.B. King's in New York. In our conversation, Michael offers his observations of David's powerful stage and screen presence, and he also explains how the Batman series helped sow the seeds for what was to become a hugely successful television career. Was television then always going to be your destination? Um, I always felt like it would be. I mean, I didn't know what it what that meant, uh, you know, because I didn't know where where it was. I I was I only recently realized that I always had this um, idea that television was in New York City, and I never. I never thought of Hollywood for some reason. And I realized I've just recently started watching the Marlo Thomas series, That Girl. Again, the opening of that is her right. um, walking and, and whatnot in, in the city. And she was an actress struggling in New York City. So I always thought that's, that's where it was. Always wanted to be involved with it, but never knew how it was going to happen. And I was very fortunate uh, that it happened. Yeah. In fact, a funny story... Um, when I was in fourth grade, so I would have been, let's see, I don't remember now how old I would have been in fourth grade, 13, 14, somewhere in there. And um, one, of the, one of the assignments in class was that we had to pick a pen pal. If you remember back in the day before computers, pen pals, and you yeah. had to write to someone. Uh, and there was a list of people that was in a book that the teacher had, and she had people in Spain and you know, uh, all over the England and, and Japan, I think. And, 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 but me, I focused on Hollywood, California. <laughs> so that's where I wrote to a guy in Hollywood, California. And uh, we had a great correspondence. I never kept it up because it was a school assignment. But uh, yeah, that was everybody was writing to Spain. And they were saying, don't you want to look outside the country? I said, nope. Hollywood, <laughs> California is for me. <laughs> I started out on all my children as a technical director. So I'd sit with the director pushing the buttons on the camera, you know, for the cameras at the switcher, it was called. And that there would be take one, take two. And I'd be that person that did that. But I always wanted to direct. I mean, I didn't want to be Adam West or, Bert War or Batman or Robin. I wanted to uh, make that show. I wanted to be there on the set. I recognized that it was a television show. So I was hooked. And then when the monkeys came along and my, I have such a love for music. So now you're putting both of them together. Are you kidding me? This was, this was great. And then, and then of course, when that left and then the Partridge family came around and I remember my mom telling me when she would see the promos for the Partridge family, she always would say, this is going to be a good story. This is going to be a good show. This is going to be good. Um, I was actually out the night that it premiered and um, I was at a pool party with a bunch of uh, classmates and I actually made sure I got on my bike and got home by 8.30 on the Friday night. So 
that was it. Music, television, situation, comedy, I'm in. But no, the, I, I can't understand people that work nine to five and go at five o'clock, say, okay, I'm done for the day. We're done when we finish the, the, the last scene of the show. <laughs> and that could be seven o'clock, eight o'clock. I work till two in the morning. I've worked till four in the morning. And it's just, you go until you're done, whatever that is. So I never understood, I could never relate to a nine to five job. So when I ended up on All My Children, which was really a fluke, and fell in love with it. I was all in, and I loved the the uh, multi-camera aspect of it, um, and I loved the pace of it. I always said that between the director, the technical director, the audio guys, they've got booms swinging in the air. They've got five cameras we used to use that are moving all over the place. The actors doing their thing, and I always equated it to like an orchestra. And the conductor says go, and everyone has their own parts that equal the whole. But I, I enjoyed the soap. I really got into it. Not the soapy part of it, but um, I used to, when I started, I used to put the shows like Happy Days, Eight is Enough, uh, what else? Uh, Charlie's Angels, uh, Laverne and Shirley. I used to physically hold the film and put it in its projector and thread it. And then it would go into a camera and it would go across the United States uh, broadcast. Uh, so I used to do that. Other people did it too, but I was assigned to that studio. I, I was just really fascinated by the whole business and every every aspect of it. So when I when the show was canceled and it went off the air and all that, and I got an offer to go back for a couple of years to this uh, engineering aspect of the show of of ABC. Well, seeing these shows now, and they would do a, uh, like the middle, and I would see a comedy thing, and I'd say, "Well, gee, we did that." Then I would watch a show. It was Castle that was on the air. If you're familiar with that TV show, Castle, it's a it's a a police drama and i'd say well gee we did we did sort of that and i realized that in the soap world you touch on everything so it wasn't a one-trick pony thing it was mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't like a police show where you know you had the crime committed and then you the clues and then you solve the crime it wasn't like that every day it was you know one day it would be um somebody's got a group and they're going to be performing at the bar some uh, guy wanted to be a comedian, so we have a lot of comedy in the show we used to do. Of course, the love, serious stuff. Um, we used to tell stories like the first AIDS story on daytime television. So there was a lot of things that we touched upon. We're telling true stories. Well, you're at, yeah. you're at the cutting edge of what is happening in the cultures of yes. our time. Yes. So I don't, although I wish I had gone to Hollywood. I mean, I, la I worked on this show for over 30 years, and I've talked to so many actors primetime actors like Willie Ames from Eight is Enough and uh, a few others that I've that I've become friends with Charlene Tilton from Dallas she's a real good friend of mine and they always said I would say oh I wish I could have directed you on this they said our show lasted 10 years or nine years or whatever you've you've got to work for 30 plus years so shut up <laughs> so yeah so I, I I feel fortunate you know you were nominated and you won numerous awards for, for um, directing how much do they mean to you? Um, at the time, um, they meant more to me than they do now. When, when I was working um, on the show, there was always competition with the other shows. So whenever the Emmy Awards were, were out and we were nominated and you'd watch the other nominees, you always felt like, well, gee, you did yours better. <laughs> so how come they won and we didn't? Not that it, you know, I think it meant more to the network 
because when we win the network promos, the award-winning show, you know, they don't say the award-winning director or technical director or cameraman. They say, you know, all my children, winner of nine daytime Emmys, you know, so that's more important uh, in, in that respect. Um, but I will say this, that the first one I won in 1995 for a show I did in 94, because you're always a year behind, it's always a year before, we did a tornado scene that came through Pine Valley, the town in, in All My Children, and wiped out the whole town. And we had tons of special effects people. We had these big airplane engine fans that blew. This tornado just came and wrecked havoc. And that's one of those days we worked uh, for every day. We did it like three or four days. Um, and we worked late into the night every day. But my wife was pregnant with our first child. I'm uh, sorry, second child. And she was due any day. And this was July, early part of July. And so the day um, we, sh we shot the show, I, it was just, it was so cool. It looked so great. It was, I, we, we were all psyched. I would call my wife before I leave New York. This was um, just self, I didn't have a cell phone at the time. And she was due any minute then. And I called her and I said, okay, I'm on my way home. And she said, okay, I'm fine. I'll see you in an hour because it was about an hour to get home. And I got home. I walked in the garage. I walked in the kitchen and there were bags sitting on the kitchen table. And I could hear her in the other room doing her breathing. And I'm saying, uh oh, I walked in and she says, we got to go to the hospital. I put her in the car and we drove to the hospital, which was over the 4th of July weekend. And all the way there, I said, I am so psyched. I said, we did a show that if we get nominated for an Emmy, this is the show that's got to be nominated. And so the year, so my daughter was born on the day we did that show. So a year later, we were nominated and we won. And that was my first win. So if you say to me, which one means the most to you, that's the one that's special. You know, they, they, um, they're validation of what you did. So, but I think to people like on the show, it was like Susan Lucci was nominated she only won once in yeah. 19 years or whatever it was. So they're, 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 they're nice to have. So, yeah. you know, I won't lie. If yeah. you'd ever had the chance to direct episodes of The Partridge Family, what do you think you would have brought to them? Well, one of the things that I always wanted at the, at the last season, I always looked back and I said, darn, you know, why didn't they let, instead of trying to replace Keith, why didn't they just let Keith go off to college or Keith have this crisis that he wanted to go out on his own and, you know, put a little of David's personality more into it where I want to do a Hendrix and I want to go off and do this. So maybe Ruben could have had a, tried to get Keith to do something mature and all the little things that might go on with that. Um, and, and even if told David, Hey, look, you don't want to do the show every week. I get that, but maybe you'll come back Christmas time and do a special or, like like Farrah Fawcett did with Charlie's Angels. So that would have been one thing that I've always had, I, you know, who would have, if, if I was ever in a position to have uh, been around that fourth season, that's something I would have tried to see how they, everybody would have felt about that. But mm. Did um, you ever have the chance to talk to, to David or Shirley about that vision of yours? No, not about it. I've talked to both of them many times. Uh, they knew, uh, Shirley knows who I had dinner with Shirley uh, last year with Johnny actually mm. we had dinner with her yeah um, and so she she knows about who I am and and what where I work and all that I had an opportunity when you know all my children moved to LA uh, it's last year last two years from in 2010 and 2011 they actually moved the show to LA why no one knows but they did that and 
one day I came in and, and they said to me, you're going to direct auditions tomorrow. Now, the way they did auditions was they actually would do it early in the morning and they would, like if Susan Lucci was going to have a new love interest, she would be acting with these four or five guys and we would do the scene, these little scenes over and over again. They would audition and we'd put it on tape um, like we were doing a real scene. And so I got the list of people that I was going to audition and one of them was Patrick Cassidy. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to direct the Cassidy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> unfortunately, it never took place. Very disappointed in that. So I would have got a, a chance. But um, no, David, a couple times um, that I spoke to him, he knew definitely where, especially when I was on, on The View with, um, or at The View, mm-hmm. uh, when I when I told that story, I don't know if you remember it as time went on, but you know, you never know. <laughs> I do know that when I went to the Sam Goody thing, when he was playing with my son, Susan Hubley, who played the princess, she yes. was, um, yeah, she was on All My Children. And I told her I was going to this um, uh, record store thing. And she said, well, would you give David the studio number and ask him to call me? So I did do that. And um, when I saw her like a day or two later, um, I said, hey, I gave David the, the thing. And she said, oh, yeah, he called me. So wow. that was nice. And subsequently, I went with Season to see Blood Brothers. I was like watching him, watching her, watching him, watching her, <laughs> watching him. Um, and he was flying out right after the show. So we never went backstage after the show. But um, yeah. but you, uh, but you I, saw in him a very mature actor uh, at that stage. You know, I always said that David, I think, I, I never... I know he wanted to be a rock star, but I, and people say, oh, he was, you know, a great rock star or whatever. Johnny always says, oh, we should compare him to Elton John and, and Rod Stewart. And in my mind, it was, he's an entertainer and he had the goods um, vocally, his acting. He, he, he was a great, in my opinion, comedic actor in the Partridge family. When I watch the show, I look for little things at the end of the scene, at the beginning of a scene or whatever, that in my opinion, knowing how scripts are written, they were ad libs, just, just little things. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. I just saw it recently where they had the horse and uh, F. Scott, the horse wins the race. And at the very, Danny says something like, I knew it all the time at the end. And, and David, Keith, takes the newspaper and starts banging him on the head right as this camera's fading in my opinion that's a that's an ad lib <laughs> you know that's something yeah. that he may have may have come up with and then when i saw him on blood brothers i was in tears i i really was in tears and i that's no lie my wife will wow. tell you because i was i was like so moved by him at the end and uh sean and and patula clark um i was i, I just i thought he was fabulous Mm. You know, you you watch him do something and you say, oh, that's Keith Partridge doing that because that's your opinion, uh, which is why he didn't get a lot of work. But Blood Brothers, I, after the first reaction of him running on stage and people clapping for him and dying down, you forgot who he, who he uh, you know, who he was. He became the character. Yeah. Were you surprised at the emotions it stirred in you? Um, yes and no. Yes, because... It was David Cassidy doing that. You know what I'm saying? It was, um, it was my, uh, wow, he is really a good actor. Not surprised because unfortunately in my, my life, I had a younger brother that passed away when I was five and he was four. He had a heart condition and he passed away. And um, that affected 
uh, a, a lot in me growing up. And I, I do believe it affected why I did not go out to California when I, to, to be a director, my family was here and I was a big, a big family uh, person. Um, um, and so there's a line in Blood Brothers uh, where, where David, or where Mickey says, um, I don't know about Sean, he says, I don't, I don't understand, something like, I don't understand that could have been me that and he was in tears when he was saying it and i just remember thinking my brother he had this heart thing it could have been me that had it and not you know and and so that's what it stirred up in in my mind at that moment and i remember that line you know it could ma it could have been me and he had the gun in his hand and i mean i haven't seen that play since 93 so wow. it's still vivid in my my memory and the music and um all the other characters and so he solidified for me how i viewed him as like this multi-talented entertainer he could act he knew what he was doing as an actor <laughs> he really knew what he was doing as an actor he knew what he was doing as a dramatic actor he knew what he was doing as a comedic actor he knew how to perform and to sing because of that acting uh, ability I believe that's his, how he interpreted his songs. You, you, ju you just don't turn that off. You know, you, you can't turn it off. I mean, one, I, again, one of the things that stand out of my mind is him singing My First Night Alone Without You at Madison Square Garden. That vocal echoing in the garden, you taught me how to live, to be myself and how to give, that was like, whoa, this was, this was um, very, very powerful and a very, the reading of the lyrics were very, um, you know, as a, as a 15 year old kid at the time, I wasn't moved as much just because of my age, uh, but there was something there and that I, I recognized. And so uh, I just think he was, he was a very great lyrical interpretator. And hugely underappreciated. Totally underappreciated. You know, if he, uh, if he didn't have the baggage, the Keith Partridge baggage that unfortunately he had, which it's a double-edged sword in a way, because if you think about it, uh, the fact that he did have this image just showed you how good he was. Yeah. Could, could anybody have been Keith Partridge? Mm, I don't think so. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. It was just the perfect, that's why they have, that's why they read for the part, <laughs> you know, and he was just like, it just was, it was, it was perfect. It's perfect, yeah. perfect, Perfect thing. And, you know, I've, when you go back and you watch the Partridge family and you look at what he's doing and you look at his interaction with Danny, it's just, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a sitcom, yes. The writing, I mean, he always, he always said, mom, can I have the keys to the bus? Um, well, but there were other moments in there that were hysterical. And I don't know if they would have been as funny if anybody else had done the part. They couldn't replace them. That's why they didn't. <laughs> the other thing I want to say, um, when I said before, you know, David had a four-year contract or he had a contract for that run. You know, you hear all the stories about how dissatisfied he was. He didn't want to do the show anymore. And he didn't like the, the image and everything like that. Well, one thing I'll say about him is integrity. And he did not, he could have done what Farrah Fawcett did. I'm not showing up for work. I'm breaking my contract. I'm, you know, going out and then you got to come back and try to negotiate. He, he, was, he fulfilled that contract. And to me, that's the character of him as a human being. He recognized and he did not, as much as he didn't like 
what was happening, hey, he signed a contract and, and he fulfilled his uh, agreement. And mm. that's a nice lesson for, uh, for people, right? It is. The fact that he did Blood Brother, you know, that, that he was able to do it and deliver. I never understood why he didn't go uh, do more Broadway. I know he went to do EFX after that, which I did not see. I just, more dramatic roles, more show the, the, the people the goods. I, I never, un, I just didn't understand that. Um, His Emmy nominated role yeah. in Police Story, The Chance to Live. Absolutely. Right. And then to call the spinoff show, David Cassidy, oh. Man Undercover, it's like, uh, you know, if they would have called David Cassidy as Dan Shea, Man Undercover, I would have accepted that but to call it david cassidy man undercover no 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 not 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 good if i can take you back to your early years what are your earliest memories of growing up in new jersey which is something of a proving ground for talent frank, <laughs> yeah frank sinatra yes bruce yeah. Springsteen. yeah Whitney bruce, lived, bruce lived right up the street here actually back in the day <laughs> in 78 70 did the River yeah. album and Darkness at the Edge of Town album were right, done up here uh, about, a, uh, about a half mile from here. Well, where I lived in Homedale, it was a very rural area, so there wasn't much happening. I mean, you couldn't walk down to the grocery store to buy a gallon of milk. You had to get in your car and drive like 15 minutes to get someplace. So when I found out that the um, art center, the Garden State Art Center, was being built less than a half a mile from my home, and that these performers that I watched on television were going to come there. Wow, they're going to come to Homedale, New Jersey. There's, there's nobody here. And when it opened up in 1968, people like Judy Garland played there and mm. Janis Joplin, I believe, played there. And I didn't go in 68. The first concert I ever went to was to see Glenn. My mother took me to see Glenn Campbell mm. at the Arts Center in 1969. And I was in love with the whole audience, performer, music. Oh man, because I was such a music fan. Then I saw Bobby Sherman there the year later with my sister. My sister was um, two years younger than me. So she was into, that's how I read all, I used to grab her teen magazines and read them. And then of course, then a year later, David was there, August 14th, 1971. And it was the first show after his gallbladder operation. I have a cassette of the show because I used to bring my tape recorder everywhere. Talks about how he really wanted to come here. And this show was, this venue was important to me and all that stuff. So um, that was my first experience at the Screaming Girls and all that, which I was, didn't understand that. But, (laughs) you know, it was like, quiet, I want to hear them. (laughs) The Art Center is an open theater and it has seats inside, and then it has a lawn. And the lawn's great because you could sit up there and there's no echoing. It's all great sound coming out. So I sat on the lawn for David's show in 1971. I had my recorder. And this guy next to me, or sitting very close to me, was he was being very annoying, let's put it that way. <laughs> and like David um, played Summer Days for the first time. He performed it at the Art Center for the first time. And he says, nobody's, you know, this is from an album that's coming out. That's a very good album that is not available yet. <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, sing the song. And he said, the title of the song is Summer Days. Now it was a hot August night and it was hot. And he said, it's a, uh, the, the title of the song is Summer Days. And he said, and that's just what these are summer days 
And the guy next to him goes, ah, funny, funny. Well, you could hear that clear on, my, on the cassette. Same thing with Madison Square Garden. I remember that. From my perspective, again, New York was bigger than life. And the only time I had been to New York City was with my parents. And my cousin that lives in Jersey City, New Jersey, called my sister and said, hey, you know, for your birthday, I want to take you to see David Cassidy at Madison Square Garden. And, you know, I'll get a ticket for Michael, too. <laughs> so, so my cousin at the time was 17. She and her uh, best friend and my, my sister, who was maybe 15 at the time, and I was uh, 14 and I was 16, we went to their house the night before. We stayed over. We made this whole bit. We trekked in to New York City on the on what they call the tubes, which run underneath the uh, Hudson River and actually take you to right into Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden is connected to Penn Station and Penn Station is, you know, the hub of, um, of, of trains and, and whatnot. What I remember clearly about that is getting off the tubes, um, walking up the steps at Madison Square Garden and hearing vendors saying, David Cassidy, you know, they were, they were, the, the, they were selling posters and flags and stuff. But there was clearly this, this uh, uh, scene of excitement. Manhattan's crazy anyway, <laughs> um, you know, but to have an event going on, there's a buzz going on outside. I remember clearly that, and I remember clearly walking uh, into the place. And I just remember it was my first time going to Madison Square Garden. It was my first time being in Manhattan without elderly parents, just my 17, 18 year old cousin. Uh, so it was a big wow moment. And as I said, I knew television had an arm of itself in Manhattan, in New York City. And this is where I want to go to work one day. There was all that playing on, on me uh, at that point. It was just bigger than life. It was just walking in Disneyland with all that's, that's gone on, uh, was going on. Um, I remember uh, where I was sitting. I remember the, the ecstatic crowd, the little buzz beforehand. Um, a local disc jockey named Cousin Brucey was the MC for the day. And I see Cousin Brucey every once in a while. And the last time I saw him, I talked, I said, you know, I've never said this to you, but I was at when you hosted the David Cassidy concert at Madison Square Garden. And he says to me, oh, have I got a story? I had a brand new suit that day and the girls rip, were pulling at my suit. <laughs> so uh, that was, that was kind of nice. And I also had another moment about three years ago, I went to one of those autograph shows and Tony Orlando and Dawn were there. They were also the opening act because yeah. they were on Bell Records and all that. So, um, and I said to them, I, I went and had one of those picture opportunities with them where you can get pictures with a celebrity. And so when I walked up to him and I said, I saw you guys March 11th, 1972, Madison Square Garden. And I don't remember which one of the girls said to me, oh my God, that's right. We opened for David Cassidy and Tony Orlando said, now was that the Felt Forum? Now the Felt Forum was a, a smaller venue within Madison Square Garden that held less people. I said, no, it was in the main arena. She said, yeah, that's right. So it was nice to refresh their memory. <laughs> The other thing is I, I said I had brought my tape recorder and what I remember was, and I don't have this on tape, but Tony Orlando, one of the songs they sang was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. It starts off, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. 
He was a good friend of mine. Well, he said, Jeremiah was a David Cassidy fan. And right when he said that, I said, oh, he's going to do a version about David. So I quickly put my machine in record, but he never said anything else. But I do have on tape Cousin Brucie leading the whole Madison Square Garden singing Happy Birthday to David. So I have that on, on cassette. And you could hear that pretty well. Uh, it was, uh, again, it, this whole thing was bigger than life. From time to time, would pull out that cassette and listen to it and play it with my sister or whatnot. And as I got older... I saw the maturity in him. As I said, it, uh, my first night alone without you is just like such a powerful re rendition and just the way it echoes in the garden is just so, so beautiful. And you also hear um, other things like Ricky's tune. He, yeah. sang it, he sang it more soulful than he did on the record because now it was him doing it his way. It was a lot more soul in what he would sing. And as, as, a, as I got to be older and would listen to that, I could hear that yeah. because of my maturity and background and whatnot. And that's what was lost upon the 13, 14 and 15 year old. It was, uh, it was also lost on a lot of the music critics as well. Exactly. Do you think that would happen today, given today's world, given <laughs> how now TV people are movie people and... I, I always wonder about that. How would he be perceived today if that show were, if he were around today? I also wonder if he had recorded his solo albums before he became a Partridge. Would he, how would that have been? You know? Yes, because his solo albums were so good. Yeah. You know, the depth of the production, the, about the RCA records in particular, yes. they yes. were superb. That was for many the David Cassidy they've been waiting to hear. Yeah, and I know you said Home is Where the Heart is your favorite, oh. and that's my yeah. favorite. Um, that's the one Jerry Beckley and Dewey Bunnell from America are on it. And, uh, you know, hey, they saw something in him. And, and on that line, um, you know, when David was hired to do Joseph, he replaced Andy Gibb. And Andy Gibb was, an, was a no-show most of the time. And I remember in an interview, David saying they were very reluctant to get involved with someone again from the, from the music world. But he assured them he was not Andy Gibb. And so, as we know, he did. And, and I saw that and he was, he was remarkable in that. Blood Brothers was still over the top, but mm -hmm. he was still great in, in Joseph. He said at his last show at B.B. King's that he regarded Madison and the concert at the Garden State Arts Centre as two of the best venues that he'd <laughs> ever yes. played. Do you consider Madison was the ultimate event as far as David as a performer is concerned? In the United States, yes. Um, look at it this way. If you read the TV Guide article that David's in where um, he's on the cover with his hand in the air with a microphone, and it's something about the Partridge family cash machine or whatever that title of the article is. The first line says, you're driving down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and you see a billboard that says, David Cassidy, Madison Square Garden, sold out. So you're in LA and you're, you're, you're touting Madison Square Garden. So need I say more? <laughs> yeah. You don't think that there is a full copy of the show, of the Matt um, show? I don't believe so. And um, I'm, I'm not saying, I don't believe so. And my reasons for not believing so are as follows. First of all, uh, David was on the Partridge Family, which was an ABC show. So the only station that might've covered it, that did cover it, was ABC. WABC, the local station in Manhattan. I doubt very much NBC and CBS 
back then would send a news crew to go out to promote a show that's on another network. I just, I just don't think that would happen back then. If you remember, well, uh, Johnny Carson from The Tonight Show, he, whenever they'd have a guest, they would always say, and such and such has made a movie on another network. We're not allowed to say the other channel. So right. I don't think David would, they, they would have, that's again, my opinion. The second thing is every footage that I've seen of Madison Square Garden clips is always taken from the downstage left or front of the stage right, like a pit. It's always this, this angle that looks up at them. You never see something on the stage or on a different angle. Um, so I believe that's the news footage. Back then, when they filmed uh, news stories, they would film 16 millimeter film. That's what news did. And there was no videotape back then, mm. uh, really. So I doubt that exists. Audio sound was recorded separately on a reel-to-reel -reel that we had an audio person. And I know that because I started working at ABC in 77, 78. So now you're only a few years past Madison Square Garden. And there's a, a documentary on YouTube, Eyewitness News, about Eyewitness News, uh, which is the WABC news show that covered it, covered the event. Mm -hmm. And they, um, in, um, I had to watch that in college. And in that, they showed specifically how they do their news stories. They would send a crew out. There would be an audio man and a cameraman. They would do their story. Um, they had to be back at the office for the six o'clock news by 4 p.m. They would have to develop the film. They would then have, the, the audio was not recorded on the film. It was separate, as I said. They mm -hmm. would, um, when, when the show would be brought, the news would be broadcast, they'd have the film on a film thing. They'd have an audio uh, on the audio recorder and they would be synced up. So when they're gonna play the news story on the air, both of these machines play at the same time and that's how you get your picture and sound on the air for a news story. Okay, so that's a long way of saying that's why um, a lot of the stuff was silent. You'd see a clip of David with other audio because there, whoever got this copy of the news footage doesn't have the audio soundtrack. Although I gave somebody my Madison Square Garden cassette, <laughs> a copy of it, and I all of a sudden saw David Madison Square Garden and it was synced up and I played it and I said, well, whoever got it, put my audio with that. And plus when, if they were to cover it news wise, they would not have covered it multi-camera. They would have just had one news camera and the films run out and you'd have to change the film. Okay. And yeah. when I started working at ABC, I did ask people, where's the library? Do they have this? Because that night when I got home, to my cousin's house after the show, I recorded the audio of, of WABC's broadcast of the news coverage of the show. So they did show it and there is audio there. They did it on their six o'clock news. They did it on their 11 o'clock news and I recorded both audios of that. Plus cousin Brucey did his whole thing on WABC radio. So why was cousin Brucey the MC? Because WABC is owned by ABC and ABC and the Partridge family promotion so think that that keeps narrowing the where if there was footage down i have seen the song beginnings by chicago david uh play i have seen another excerpt which is not my audio but with sound so uh when i inquired about this footage back in 78 
when I started at ABC, I started in 77 as an intern, but when I actually was working, I, I was told, no, they don't have, they don't keep the films. They would keep the broadcast, but not the films mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff like that. So unless someone took a copy of it home and we don't know about it, I just don't think that it, it exists for just, just knowing the inside workings of things. Because the other thing is, Dave, the concert started at 1.15 uh, and I have my little my little um, uh, promo in the newspaper that says, you know, Showtime 115. You had Tony Orlando and Dawn. You had Kim Carnes and Dave Ellingston. You had Brooks Honeycutt was also a performer at the opening act. And then you had David. So you're talking about two-ish, three, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. They had to get that film footage back to the newsroom to develop it to get ready for the six o'clock news. So again, just timing wise, it just feels to me that uh, I just don't, I just don't think it exists. I don't think it was something that they would have done back then. People will say, yeah, but they, there was a TV thing at Madison Square Garden. There was a, a system called Joshua Television that was new back then. And uh, they had David projected up on a screen. So I've always said, well, maybe Madison Square Garden recorded it and then of course I remembered there wasn't videotape back then so uh, subsequently someone I know located this gentleman Joshua and asked him in about the event he remembered the David show he remembered the other shows they did there Chicago and I forget a couple others that they had done it was a very new technology then uh, to, to do at a concert and he mm -hmm. said that no they did not record those shows they were just projected on the screen and that was it you know it's something that everybody wants to see everyone's longing yeah. to to see it and we all live in hope that yeah one day something will will appear because well, the whole production of that show and yeah. the orchestration and the range of music that he performed that was the essence of him yeah yeah, it was a it was a great show. It was definitely a peak. It was like the Beatles at Shea Stadium or the Ed Sullivan Show, David Cassidy at Madison Square Garden. And it's a shame there's no real extensive coverage of it we could re-enjoy because um, it was great, you know. And and the mists of time, as they say, maybe make it more special. But when I listen to that tape, it's just as good as it's just what I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, I know the dialogue. Somebody, some guy at, in, in ABC or wherever took this thing and said, oh, they're going to throw this out. Let me make a copy of it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the full show or whatever, but one thing's for sure. Nobody brought their home films, home cameras. They brought their still cameras because I did, but I had yeah. never seen somebody say they brought their Super 8 camera, you know, to the concert and, and filmed it. But mm -hmm. um, maybe one day I'll be wrong and that's great. <laughs> well, everybody would love to see it. I mean, everyone yeah. who's ever been to that concert says, oh, it was just yeah. the best. It was definitely better than the one I saw in 71 where David had, you know, I went 71, 72, and then 72 in June when he came back to the art center. So there's definitely, if you listen to these back to back, you can definitely hear a difference in mm. all three shows with the a garden, even him excited. He's just laughing and bouncing off the wall and just great voice. And it was like, he was so up for that. Yeah. And, um, 
So, uh, whereas the Garden State Art Center show the year before was the first show after his operation, and he kept leaving the stage and getting water. And he said he, he would be gone for like 30, 40 seconds. He'd be off the stage and he'd come back and he'd say, that's going to happen a lot. Um, he said he lost 18 pounds and he put 10 of it back. And he sat a lot and played. And then uh, it was a shorter show. It just seemed like he was like 32, 33 minutes. In, seven, in, in June of 72, there was a whole new David Cassidy. He was more uh, older. He was more, I'll say, hipper, I guess you'd call it. He didn't wear his white outfit. He had a jacket and pants. He sang a Jeff Beck song. He sang more songs like that. It was just a whole different show. So something happened between March and June that he decided to do something different. Maybe it coincides with his Rolling Stone article. Yeah, it was a whole different show. The, the cool thing about the June 72 Art Center was that the town of West Orange came to the show. They brought a whole bunch of high school kids that had made things for David. And they presented him with the proclamation making his birthday, April 12th, the David Cassidy Day. And his mother, Evelyn, came out on stage. So that he came out and sang two songs, and then they held up the show while they had the ceremony on stage. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, so that was kind of kind of cool. They brought Evelyn on stage, the mayor of West Orange, an art center representative, and of course, David was there. So anyway, um, yeah, that was a nice little moment to be there for. But yeah, I haven't seen that anywhere. And it's another thing is the what you, you touched on before, the people within the industry, like people at ABC, the day when I was walking around with little Bo and my son through the through the studio, oh, David Cassidy's on, on The View. Um, Everybody had respect. Everybody in the business had respect for other people in the business. They get it, you know, but every, every generation has its idols and that was ours, you know. Gosh, he had such a great voice. Oh. Um, uh. Different on every album, maybe. You know, he, he did different styles, and, but he could do it all. Again, I was a fan through my sister for like Bobby Sherman. I go back now and listen to Bobby Sherman's songs. He doesn't have a voice like David did. He wasn't a teeny bopper singer. <laughs> David was a very mature performer. You've got a lovely story from shortly after David's passing where you showed Eddie Bugatti what David had written in his book, Could It Be Forever, about recording. How can I be sure? Tell us what his reaction was. He thought David was a great singer. I think... I think the, the, the David Cassidy version of How Can I Be Sure did better than Eddie's own band's version of How Can I Be Sure. It was still a big hit over here, but David's, was, I believe, was worldwide. It was just a great, a great again, a great reading uh, of the lyric. There's a whole section where David talks about the Rascals and how important they were. And he also wrote that Felix Cavallari and Eddie Brigatti, who were the two singers in the Rascals, were like the Mario Lanza of their times. I mean, he really, really talked very highly of them. I Xeroxed those couple pages and I drove to see Eddie. My wife and I are friends with him and his, and his wife. And so we were going out to dinner. And as soon as I got there, I says, I want you to, I, w I want you to read this or I'm going to read it to you. And so I read him David's, what David said about him. And he was just looking at me really serious. And he said, wow. He said, I just wish I could tell him thank you and, and have a conversation with him about it. And we talked a little bit about it. I mean, he thought David's version was great. We both wonder why at the end of How Can I Be Sure, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the Rascals version ends with How Can I Be Sure, I'll Be Sure With You. 
it sort of puts the whole meaning of the song. How can I be sure, uh, you know, I'll, uh, with the world that's constantly changing, blah, blah, how can I be sure? I'll be sure, I'll be sure with you. David's version, they don't do that. They fade it out. And that's like a, a question just from a production value that I would just really like to know what was, because it, it is a whole different spin on, this, on the song. You know, and I would I would think if I'm if I'm uh, Wes Farrell and I want the girls to go screaming, having David say to all the millions of girls, "I'll be sure with you," <laughs> would would you know be a little yeah. bit. But uh, no, they didn't do it. It's funny because in one of the DVDs of David's concert, the band that he's playing with musically, they play it. It says, uh, "How can I be sure?" And it goes da 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 da, where it's "I'll be sure with you." David sings, um, how can I be sure in a world that's constantly, he just sings the lyric yeah. that he's, you know, it doesn't say that line. I just, just curious uh, about it. But Eddie is a vocalist. He doesn't, he's, he plays the maracas and the tambourine. So he's really into vocals and he really appreciated what David said and David's version of the song that, that I know. So it was nice to be able to talk to the songwriter. You mentioned earlier that you saw him in Joseph on, on Broadway. Yes. Um, that relates in some way to a funny All My Children story. Uh, well, yeah. So what, what happened was I had been, it was before I started on All My Children. I started on my, All My Children in April of 83. And this was March of 83. And before I started on All My Children, I was still, I was still working in the engineering department at ABC. I had gone on vacation. I went to the Bahamas and I came back. And there was a record, as I said, I'm a music nut. Um, there was a record that I heard in the Bahamas that I had to get. So my first day back at work, at that point, I was working a night shift. Um, I came back. I parked on the street in Manhattan. It's raining. So I had an umbrella. So I had my head down. I walked up to this record store. I bought the record. I walked back down, got in my car and went to work. And later that uh, evening, I saw a commercial for Joseph starring David Cassidy. And I'm saying, wait a minute, I just walked by that theater because <laughs> it was raining. When I was done with my shift, I drove back and their biggest light was the words David Cassidy as Joseph. And I was like, I walked past that, never even saw it. So what had happened was I got tickets to go see it on a Sunday. I got there early and David showed up early and got out of the taxi cab. And it was me and, and my sister, my, my, my younger sister, my brother, maybe one or two other fans. And he got out of the cab and he was chatting with us. And my sister took a great picture of me with him. And, and uh, we saw the show. The show was great. And so now fast forward, um, I start on All My Children and I started as a technical director and I was training uh, as a technical director. I had the real technical director sitting behind me. And I was doing my scenes. I had the director, I had a control room full of people this one afternoon. Uh, in a control room, I'm sure you've seen control room, there's millions of TV monitors and whatnot. And we had an off-air monitor of our local WABC channel station. And mm -hmm. they had a five o'clock news story. And they're sitting being interviewed in the studio, which is right across the street from me. So now there's David sitting there being interviewed. And I could just walk right in if I was over there, but I'm sitting at this switcher doing the scene 
And I'm like, okay. And then the actor goes up. So we have to do the scene again. I'm like, just get through the scene, get through the scene. I want to, I want to get up out of the chair. And so now I'm thinking while I'm doing the scene, oh, when I'm done, I'll just tell the, te- the technical director, I'll just say, I got to run to the bathroom or I just got to get out of here. So we finished the scene. His name was Howie. And I, I said, Howie, got to run to the bathroom. And I ran out of there. So he must have thought I got sick to my stomach. I literally ran down. Oh, because David's segment was done. So now I'm thinking he must have left. Um, I literally ran across the street in Manhattan, not even look at the traffic, just ran across the street, got to the lobby of the building. And there was David standing in there talking to somebody. So I got there in time and I got there. I waited for him to be done. He was done with the girl that he was talking to. She walked away and he turned to me, he said, hi. And I said, hi. And I was like, David, I went to see you and Joseph. You are absolutely amazing. I have to tell you, I, I, I'm over here training, but I had to run over to see you to say how much I, I, I loved your performance. And I had a picture taken with you. If I come to the Royale Theater, can I come backstage and have, him, have you sign it? He said, well, if you can get backstage, you can come, I'll sign it for you. And with that, the taxi came up because at that point he was taking taxis around Manhattan and we walked out of the building together and I ran back to the studio. When I walked back in the control room, everybody looked at me. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I just I just was (laughs) in. The side note is I went back to the Royal Theater. I had my ABC credentials. And and now now we're about a month or so, maybe a month and a half into David's run as as Joseph. And now he had a limo that he pulled up in. There were <laughs> girls all lined up. He got out of the cab and ran into the doorway, which led down a long hall into the backstage uh, area. Well, when he did that, I just walked in like I was an employee. <laughs> you know, what was funny is he was running in front of me. And there's a Partridge Family episode where the, uh, I can't remember the character's name, but Howard Bain- Baines, the, 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 the writer was... If they could hide for uh, X amount of uh, 24 hours without being discovered, they would. Okay. And there's a scene where uh, the the guy is in the park with them and Shirley yells, uh, the girls discover David and, 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 and Shirley says, see that guy over there, that's Mick Jagger. And they all go running. And then the the girls, right. So they see David and uh, he's running. So you see this camera shot of him with his hair flipping back and he's running away. That's the shot in front of me that I thought of him running down this hallway. But I went in and he was signing in and he signed my picture and, and he was very gracious. He was always very kind, very gracious whenever mm-hmm. I spoke to him. And yeah. I spoke to him many, several, you know, behind good scenes at Good Morning America, at Sam Goody's. Uh, he would have been the, probably the best friend anyone could have. Yeah. I've heard that said. Yeah, and that, that you just reminded me of something that when I brought my son to Sam Goody's, and he's the one that said, "Put him on the table," because he because my son was in the stroller. He said, "Put him up here." So my wife took him out and put my son um, on the table, and he started playing with him. It was like the rest of the world. I mean, that was David the father. Yeah. You know, Bo was around, Bo was born, but he was just so into my son. And then when he was, he goes, oh, we got to, we got to start moving this thing along. And he came over and he says, Joseph's the star today. That's my son's name, Joseph. Uh, and when, when, and, and as my wife said in her story about feeling him inside of her kick for the first time at the David concert, when David passed away, my son posted that picture. My son's 28 now. 
he posted the picture and he said, this person has, he has always been a part of my life. And that's, you know, for a 28 year old, he appreciates it. You yeah. know, he, he, he doesn't disrespect him. You would have seen or met him a few times on the, the Regis Philbin shows. Oh yes. The Regis Philbin show and Regis passed, just passed away recently. Mm. And, um, you know, he was such a kind man, Regis. Um, I, anytime David was on there, I, of course, could go in. Um, I would bring my, my younger brother or uh, my wife was at one of them. I brought her. A couple times I was working, so I couldn't stay. I could just get them in. And then, of course, I had to go back to work, but, but they got to. But every time I was there, Regis would always come over and I would say, oh, you know, about all my children. And he'd yell out to his audience, oh, this guy knows Susan Lucci, everybody, you know. But he would say, what do you, what do you got in the bag? And I said, well, my brother has a, a record album. He says, you want it signed, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, go back, go back to the green room right now. Go ahead, go ahead, go. He was always, Regis was always, he got it, you know. He, he, you could tell he had respect for David if you ever watched those, the shows that he had David as a guest. But yeah, there were many times. Uh, but again, Regis was, my, when, the time when my wife went, uh, she had the up-to-date album. And uh, I think Sound Magazine, but it was, uh, or maybe it was just the other. Oh, she brought David's, uh, and it was David and Sean when they sang on the Regis show. And um, he came over to, to me and my wife and, and said, uh, let me use the albums on the air. You know, let me, let me use them. So he's actually holding up my up-to-date album and made sure they signed it before we got it back. Again, whenever I would be around what I'll call professionals, like he... When we were backstage at Good Morning America, they were treating him with such respect. Alice Cooper, friends, uh, Jerry Beckley and the guys from America, Bruce Johnston, who produced uh, from the Beach Boys, right? I mean, Carl Wilson, who sings with them on I Write the Songs, that other voice, Carl Wilson. I mean, people in the, 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 the list of musicians that you, you know that played with him. I always wondered why he didn't produce other acts, why he didn't become a producer. And I also wish he had gone on tour and done David Cassidy, the RCA years, and maybe did a medley of portraits in the beginning and then do a, uh, the three albums and then come back to another medley at the end. And, Absolutely. And show, show, showcase that. There was talk in late 74 that he was going to come over here and do the um, do Earl's Court. He was going to be reinvented, almost like a young Mick Jagger. Yeah. Wow. But it never happened. It yeah, never happened. I mean, you can compare him to Ricky Nelson. And Ricky Nelson, I think, was taken serious in his later years as a musician, right? Um, yes. Elvis Presley did a whole string of silly movies, and he survived that. Maybe with the right management, maybe, or producers or mm -hmm. whatever, he might have been able to... Uh... I always hated that when he did an album, late like No Tr uh, Old Trick, New Dog, that he always had to... He always had to give them, I think I love you. He always had to, he always had to go back to that. It was like, okay, it just mm. seems, you know, it's like, okay, let's put it aside and just focus on this, yeah. the now. What, what were your emotions when you saw his last show? Um, at B.B. King's? Yeah, um, I felt, well, of course, we didn't know how sick he was. Um, I couldn't believe, I think he even said that he maybe would do a one-off show so although it was touted as his last show, I always just figured that, meh, that could change your mind. I mean, 
everybody's changed their mind. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I didn't, I think it would have been much more uh, emotional if we knew that, that this was really it. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it would have been, I just felt sad. Um, I was glad it was in Manhattan mm -hmm. because yeah. that's where I saw him at the garden. I just, it was just, it was a it was sad. It just, mm -hmm. uh, for, for other reasons, meaning not because of his health reasons, but because you knew that um, he wasn't going to do this. And, you know, he had said he had problem with his eyes and his knees or his legs or, and so, you know, just a realization that we're all getting old. Your idols are getting old too. I remember uh, when he was the last song, I think I love you. He was singing. And I just kept thinking in my mind that this is the last time he will, will see him sing this song like this. And it was, <laughs> but not for the reasons I thought. But so. as you say, he left so much happiness through his music, through his presence. And there are very few people on this planet that have made that sort of huge cultural, emotional impact. What do you want his legacy to be? Just that he made people happy. I mean, he just put a smile on people's face and that he was loved and that he was loved more than maybe he even knows how much he was loved. And he... He made it, I remember um, him saying, I never, when he was complaining about being Keith Partridge, he said, I never met a Keith Partridge type. And I would always turn around and say to my mother, well, I'm like Keith Partridge. I'm not, <laughs> I'm just a nice person. You know, I don't, I think he made a difference in people's lives. And what else can you do? Even if you touch one person and he touched millions uh, in different formats, be Broadway, whether it be uh, music uh, in the studio, uh, he certainly, you know, what I remember is that the view, the rehearsal when, because it was a live show and David sang live, he ran through his songs several times. And in between songs, he was talking to the other musicians that were on the stage that they had hired for him. And he was talking about equipment. And it struck me that, man, he even knows technical stuff. He knows his stuff. He invested in the types of guitars and the music and he knew the process. He knew how to do everything. Yeah, he touched the whole, he did, he just didn't touch the United States. You know, he touched the world. And that's what is, is, is to me, when you say legacy, to me, it's like, gosh, everywhere you go, somebody's heard of him. His records were big all over the world. It doesn't happen. It didn't happen uh, to a lot of people. It was just something about the mix of his voice, his looks, the show, the writing, the 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 time period. Like you said, you know, we 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 were. You got to remember where we were in '68, '69 with the Vietnam War and the Manson's murders and and John Robert F. Kennedy being assassinated and all this turmoil in the world. And then this nice little show mm. comes along that just is a great escapism and it's charming. Like I said, when I watch the Partridge Family shows, I always look at the end of scenes and see as the camera's fading, what they're doing or saying or whatever, because to me, that's knowing with my experience, that's them. That's the real them. A couple of little things have happened where, I, where, we, where I've seen them. Uh, and I just say, that's David. That's, that's just him ad-libbing. Well, this has been great. It's been wonderful. Yeah. You know, I'm glad people are keeping him in the forefront feel bad that albums like Helm is Where the Heart Is and, and um, the 1990 album that he did, which I loved. Those are two standouts for me. 
and that I just, you know, wish that, like like everyone else does, that people would maybe just recognize him a little bit more or see see that he was something more than just um, you know somebody that they said here read these lines and look cute. You know, there was substance there. If you have enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, share on social media, and I would love it if you subscribed. That way you can find out first when a new episode is available. Until we connect again, stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other.